hey, hey, hey. Back with another episode of Scholar Tea, where we are two scholars giving you the tea. I am Cameron Carl. And I'm Shauna. And we are thrilled for another episode we are offering to you in a timely manner. This is new for me and Shauna. Okay. No tea, no no shade. (laughs) It was real in the field. It was a whole pandemic, a whole ass panini. Okay. She's still out there creeping. So so I've had three people in the past three weeks say that they have gotten COVID for the first time. Like the Mm. entire COVID, they had not gotten it. And then recently, I know three people that have contracted. I know that it has weakened, but my understanding is it's also easier to catch at this point. Oh, it's a common code at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got a booster last weekend because um, I leave for Italy this weekend. So I was like, let me get this booster into my system. Hopefully she does something, but I did get a booster shot. Damn, you just reminded me I need to get a booster. Like somebody was so worried about my kids. I make sure everybody else in the household is taken care of. They all updated and stuff. I, I need to get mine. Shoot. I will remind you if I have not heard from you on Friday morning, I'm going to text you and be like, Shauna, schedule that's that booster. As soon as we're done. <laughs> I promise everybody. I, I promise. Yeah. I'm immunocompromised. So now I'm going every six months. Mm. Um, and I, I feel like everybody should have it in, given the recommendation. Is it now going to be annually or every six months? I don't know. I get every six months. Well, I planned it that way. Mm-hmm. But the last time I was scheduled to get it, Kingsley had actually given me COVID for the second time. And so they told me to wait six months out of that. But I'm beyond that window now. Okay. So just because I'm around a lot of people, the population I work with, I just choose to do every six months. I understand that COVID's over officially <laughs> as of the 11th per President Biden. <laughs> I, I know, because when I got up there, I was like, oh, are they, are they about to charge me? I don't know what that means in terms of COVID is over. So I was like, are they about to charge me for this? Like, I, I didn't right. know what to expect when I went to get my, with my booster. I was like, are they about to charge me? So we're about to ask about moods, speaking of COVID. And uh, if your mood was a black sports legend, who are you on today? So some would argue that he's not a legend yet, but I think he has legendary status. And so my mood on today, Shauna, is Steph Chef Curry with the shot, uh, because anybody that has watched him play, watch him at his brilliance, he moves without the ball, right? So he doesn't have to be the center of the play for the play to be in action. So on today, I feel like I'm running around the court, too many things to do beyond overcommitted, but I feel like the shot always goes in and I always tell my grad students, the shit always gets done. So what you're stressing about today won't mean anything next week. So I feel like I'm kind of Steph Curry today, just running around, trying to get my life in order, trying to check things off the list. But I also feel really over, overly, overly committed. I think that means I need to watch more TV because I, I don't, I've never heard that. We're going to do a little ad lib in here. We have a special guest today, everybody. Uh, Kennedy, if your mood was a black sports legend, who are you on today? What? A black sports <laughs> legend. Black people. Mm-hmm. Athletic. Athletics. I don't do sports. That's her mood. <laughs> <laughs> you should have Kennedy help you do the jokes. Oh, um, Cameron wants you to help me do the jokes. Hey, Kennedy. Um, <laughs> say hey. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so my mood on today is Serena Williams. You know, she knows how to uh, kick ass on and off the court. She's multifunctional. And every now and then she lets herself come through and and show in authentic ways. 
and, you know, maybe you got to break a racket here and there to get the thing done, but you understand where I'm coming from, you know, my point, and I'm still going to win at the end of the day. So um, maybe I feel like busting a few rackets today, but at the end of the day, you just know what I mean. You know, I'm serious. I'm still going to win at the end of the day. Okay. And the way Shana came in on this episode, y'all, she hot. She's hot. <laughs> she's cooling yeah. down. She's cooling yes. down. You know, I'm, she's I'm cooling down. I'm bringing myself down. The things that we have to contend with that work here and there, like something I, I did need a minute. Like we decompressed for like 20 minutes just now because I just had to work through this thing. I've just never seen anything like that happen to this extent before. And I've at least, at least I feel validated in what I, what I express as concerns because I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't overreacting, overreaching, overresponding, because that's what we do as folks that look and embody folks like us. So yes, well, they make I'm us coming feel in like- hot. They make us feel like we're overreacting or, yes. yeah, yeah, you know, and, and so when you said, Serena, you need to watch this clip because you might not have seen it, but she, she told a line judge, she said, I will shove this ball down your throat. She was so pissed at this line judge. <laughs> have you seen this clip? This I the, haven't. from the 2000s, but she, Serena was pissed, honey, that day. <laughs> I might just need to have it as an automatic send response though, moving forward. <laughs> So I'll that's you, my mood. I'll send you the, the link later. <laughs> well, Shauna, in this episode, we're going to do what we usually do. We are going to highlight our scholar of the week. We are going to spill some tea. And we are going to have a wonderful conversation with a dear friend to both of us. Dr. Stephen John Quay is finally stepping into the scholar tea streets. We have been trying to book him for two seasons. So we are excited to have him on the podcast today to share some gems. We have some things to discuss in terms of what's problematic, some jokes of the week, and we have some celebrations and affirmations to leave the people with. So Shana, should we get into it? We shall, and we using folks' whole government names on this episode. <laughs> so first, we'll recognize our Scholar of the Week, Dr. Kamaria B. Porter. Dr. Porter is an Assistant Professor of Education Policy Studies at the Pennsylvania State University. Dr. Porter received her doctorate in higher education from the University of Michigan, and her research examines gender and racial inequities in higher education, particularly university response to sexual assault, graduate education, and faculty experiences. Her dissertation, Speaking into Silence, Intersections of Identity, Legality, and Black Women's Decision to Report Sexual Assault on Campus, examined Black women's perspectives of the legal system in weighing whether to formally report sexual violence. Using her background as a counselor to survivors, Kamaria adapted her research design to include trauma-informed practice. Her research aims to understand how race, gender, and class influence Black women's decision-making around reporting sexual harm, in addition to proposing protective measures to prevent sexual violence in the first place. Please, let's give it up for Dr. Porter. Shout out to Dr. Porter doing the good work and being critical of these institutions that they say they are there to support us. So thank you, Dr. Porter. We are excited to celebrate you on today. So Shauna, I would love to chat about a recent Inside Higher Ed article that I saw that was highlighting what's happening at George Washington University, who currently has unarmed police. So students and community members protested at GW the decision to begin arming campus police officers, marching all the way to the residence of the GW president with signs reading, we keep us safe and guns do not equal public safety. 
The university president announced that some members of the university's police force will begin carrying firearms. He cited increasing gun violence at institutions across the nation, including recent shootings at Michigan State University, the University of Virginia, and the Covenant School and the elementary school in Nashville. He noted that only certain high, highly qualified supervisory officers who have received formal police academy training and specialized firearms will be armed. Shauna, as we both know, the current campus I'm on, I'm assuming the campus you on, the police are armed. And it's almost a rarity to find campuses that still have police officers or police departments with unarmed officers on campus. So my question to you, especially as a movement of firearm-free police on campus is growing, should police officers be armed on college campuses? I have so many different responses to this. I mean, my first one is obviously we have a national issue here. This is a societal concern and is, of course, then lands at the doorsteps of higher education institutions. I feel like this president was placed in a situation where he was required to do this because it seems to be coming out of nowhere. I just don't understand how, if you've gone on this long with violence in this area, gun violence in particular in this area, why now in 2023 are we trying to arm our officers? So from my vantage point, I feel like this was not even necessarily something that the president aimed to do. No pun there intended. I feel like this might have been an effort that was placed upon this president. And then the other thing, of course, you know, my personal thought is increasing guns and accessibility to guns is not going to help us as a nation conquer this issue. Simultaneously, I will say as someone who's been on a few campuses where there has been gun violence at this point, I mean, me personally, I feel like you know, I also at some point, if, if there's someone needing to respond to someone that does have a gun and this is an open campus, I want them to be able to respond to that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that until we deal with the situation in a comprehensive societal way, in a comprehensive interdisciplinary way, I do want our officers to be able to respond to those situations. Otherwise, you're talking about, well, I guess the other thing you could think about, though, is the fact that um, maybe that's why we have external police to get engaged and involved, but that would increase the number of moments, minutes that we are waiting for someone to respond to a situation that is out of our control. Mm-hmm. I would not want to put our officers in a position where we're expecting them to respond to someone that's most likely not even a part of our community that has a gun that is open firing on people. But at the same time, my own philosophy is that at the end of the day, I just don't see how increasing access to guns writ large is going to attend to the matter that we really need to firmly address as a, as a nation. Yeah. And so I understand the practicality of a first responder being able to, you know, respond to an incident. And as our campuses become more and more lockdown incidents happen. I do understand the practicality of that argument. This is where I might, I'm gonna lose some friends, lose some followers, because I have extreme, extreme views on gun ownership. I really don't think anybody should own guns. You can throw the second amendment out with the people that wrote it. From my opinion, I I have a friend here in Tallahassee. He's like, hey, you want to go to the gun range me? And, And it could be the way I was raised. Like my mother didn't even let me 
play with guns when I was a child. I didn't, I didn't get to play video games and I wasn't a Jehovah Witness y'all, but that was just not something that I was allowed to do. That does kind of think then inform some of my thoughts around statistics show that more guns, to your point, Shauna, more guns do, do not mean less crime, does not stop crime, does not prevent crime, right? And then when we go and travel, and I was thinking about when you and I were just walking around Italy, we never thought twice about our safety in the sense of a public shooting, somebody robbing us at gunpoint. I've been to Japan. People that got the guns, they so far locked up that you got to ask permission to go get them unlocked, right? Like I've been, we've been in places and societies where this is not the norm, so to speak where you have to worry about your safety just going across campus for a meeting. And then I think about the work, and we're going to highlight him later, but the work of, you know, Charles Davis and thinking about this abolition movement of getting police in general off college campuses because they then become this microcosm of society that only police minoritized bodies. Um, So then I, I struggle with how do we keep people safe while also not perpetuating this norm of guns everywhere for everybody. Sorry, just really quick, to your point of GW, if you have gone this long, without an armed force and you, and there's no incident on campus and there's no incident that has happened that is causing you to do this. You're worried about the national and it's probably coming from alumni or board of trustees to mm-hmm. our previous conversations on episodes that are pushing this you know, agenda, so to speak. Mm-hmm. He cited no example recently of something that has happened on campus. I just don't understand now why we're buying into, if you've gone this long, kept, kept people safe on campus without arming police officers, what's the point now? I have a hard time believing it's not attached to some kind of donor or something. Everyone should also, if they have a chance, if they have a moment, listen to an audiobook if you don't have the chance to read it. Uh, Jonathan Metzl's work, it's called Dying of Whiteness. And it actually talks a bit more about how folks in the U.S. have attached gun ownership to their identities and they would die first, literally, before they realize that having access at this rate is is very harmful to us. And uh, his research shows, for instance, there's a whole bunch of different dichotomies there. I really do think folks should read it. But um, there's one segment where he noted increased rates of suicide, particularly by gun, were more inclined to occur in states where gun laws became more lax or were non-existent. So there's more correlation between self-harm or a, a home, a situation where there's a, an accident within the home rather than like home invasion or this race war that everybody's so concerned about. Like you're more inclined to hurt yourself or your family than anybody external to your home. And so to your point about like gun ownership on an individualized level, the statistics show us over and over again that maybe we should be more mindful about how we go about doling out arms. But in this situation, I'm not seeing the benefit to arming a police force that wasn't already armed in a way that's, you know, being mindful of what the the real experience and lived experiences of the folks on that campus reflect, you know. But I, I do think, you know, some of these things are are strong issues and it's complicated and we're not going to get to the answer today, but I don't think that putting more guns in more people's hands is the answer. Well, that's what's happening in these academic armed police streets. So we're welcoming today Dr. Stephen John Quay, since we're doing whole names, <laughs> who is a professor in the Higher Education and Student Affairs Program within the Department of Educational Studies. He's published 
several books and book chapters and peer review journals. And you can see him in the Journal of College Student Development, amongst many others. He's also served as president of ACPA, College Student Educators International, and associate editor of the Journal of Diversity in Higher Education. He's currently the editor for the Journal of Higher Education. Let's welcome Stephen Quay. Well, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. Uh, we are graced today with Kay with Quay's presence, Dr. Stephen Quay. <laughs> Um, thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you all uh, for have, having me. Yes, absolutely. Um, we're very excited. Um, Steven's been a long time peer mentor, mentor, a guiding light in higher education with regard to thinking about um, activism and diversity uh, from a critical lens. And so um, first we would be interested to hear about your journey. What keeps you drawn to your career in the academy? Yeah, so I think I'm the kind of person who I really like to do different things. Like I get bored very easily if I feel like I'm doing the same thing all the time. Um, and so one of the things I love about being in the academy is that it gives me permission to do different things. Um, I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I want to share a little bit about how I got to this place because I think it helps inform um, what keeps me here um, and why I'm drawn here. And so I didn't really see myself in the academy um, as a student, you know, much like many people who enter the field of higher education and student affairs. I was involved as an undergraduate student at James Madison University. I was a resident advisor for two years and then um, a hall director, actually, my senior year, which is a rare position I'm finding out as I move further into my career about having, you know, what, 20, 21 year olds running an entire hall. Probably not the best idea in hindsight, but I'm grateful for the experience as an undergraduate student. Um, so then I went into a master's program in student affairs at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio after that. And I just noticed um, when I was in my classes, I just, a light went off. I just felt so enthralled about what I was learning about in a different way than my peers. Like many of them love talking about their assistantships and love like processing that and the out of class stuff. And I didn't, I mean, my assistantship was fine, but I really felt like I thrived in the classroom. Like I, I really loved reading about my identity. It's the first space that I ever read about the experiences of other black people. So I, I was really like enthralled by that. I really loved the conversations with my peers. Um, I loved engaging with my faculty members. Um, so one of my faculty who has passed away now, so rest in peace, um, Dr. Peter Magolda, I would go to his office hours, you know, regularly and just talk with him about what I was reading about. And, you know, now as a faculty member, I see how much time that took, but he never made me feel like um, I was a bother or that, that um, he didn't have time for me. He was very invested in that. And so he's actually the one who, at one point in our conversations, he said to me, you know, you know, Stephen, I feel like you, you seem like you're, you're engaging in a different way than, than many people who I'm used to. Like, have you ever thought about doing what I do, being a, a professor? And at the time, I had not even considered that as a possibility. Um, and so he said that to me, and I sort of filed it away until like a few months later, then I started to give it more thought. Um, so I met with him, I asked him more about what he does, how he spends his time, and just those interactions really set me on this path of wanting to go into the academy. Um, and so that brings me to where I started around 
I think part of the reason why I'm drawn to it is because from listening to uh, Peter Magoda's experiences, I saw the, the other things that he did on a regular basis. Like I only saw him in the classroom, but he talked with me about his research. Um, he talked with me about like leading the program, like his meetings with students, with colleagues, with administrators. He talked with me about his work in ACPA and why that was important. It just broadened my perspective of the field. Um, and so for me, like I'm really drawn because again, I get to do different things. I love doing my research. I also love being in the classroom, teaching students. Um, I love mentoring. Um, I really love the service work that I do. Um, and then right now in my career, I'm exploring like the administrative path. And so I feel like, again, I get to do four or five different things every day. Um, and that's what makes me just really drawn to it. So yeah, so that's in a nutshell, what motivates me. I love that, Stephen. And I heard so many stories about the way Peter has transformed lives and has, continues to do that even uh, with the legacy that he has left. Um, you and I have some shared interests around really understanding uh, the role of racial battle fatigue and and the the harm that racial battle fatigue can do to us as people of color, to us as Black people. I would love to hear your insights and what you have learned what you have taken away, how you now approach your work in higher education because of the the research that you've done around racial battle fatigue? Yeah. So one of the things the previous question I mentioned was loving doing research. And so this is where I've spent a lot of my time, probably the last like five or six years. Let me talk a little bit about what racial battle fatigue is first, and then I can talk about some of the things that I've gained for those who may be unfamiliar with the concept. And so in a nutshell, racial battle fatigue describes the, the exhaustion that people of color feel from repeated racism. And I think it's very easy for listeners to, to think, uh, oh, it's just, you know, people of color, we're just tired, right? It's racism is, is exhausting and and that sort of like minimizes it. It's sort of the, like, I think only a part of it. I think what's most important for people to understand about racial battle fatigue, it's not just that people of color are tired from racism, but it's that it's literally having material effects on our bodies and our well-being. So for example, it has physiological, psychological, and emotional behavioral stress responses. So things like Folks who are experiencing racial battle fatigue often talk about like sleeplessness. It often leads to apathy. Um, it often leads to clenched teeth. Um, often leads to physical aches in our bodies. Um, things like poor school and job performance. So to me, it has these like deleterious consequences again on our psychological, physiological, and behavioral well-being. So I think when we talk about it that way, we we help folks understand the depth of what we mean by racial battle fatigue. It's not just, again, exhaustion. Yes, that's, that's the sort of elevator way of talking about it. What do you mean? It's much deeper than that. It has these health consequences. Um, it's literally shortening our lifespan. So to me, I think that's like really, really important. And so for me, I became interested in it because of my own experiences. And so on August 9th, 2014, is when um, Darren Wilson shot and killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And I was really struggling with figuring out how to move forward as a result of that. Um, I was at Miami University at the time, about to submit my promotion and tenure materials, um, and I just couldn't do it. And I was just really feeling this sense of sadness and loss for somebody who I never met, right? But yet I felt so deeply connected 
I thought about my son, I thought about myself, I thought about my friends who are Black, and, you know, and I was wrestling with all of that. And then I came across the concept of racial body fatigue, and it's much like when you're dealing with something and you finally have language to explain something you've been feeling, like it's really empowering in a, in a newfound way. And I just then became really enthralled by it and wanted to, wanted to investigate it further. Um, and so to me, what's important in, in the research that I've done around this is that what I've noticed is that healing is possible. So for example, I'm not just invested in contributing to understand what racial battle fatigue is, like I spent time talking about what it is, but I'm most invested in, all right, so we know what it is. So what is it that Black folks in particular, what can we do to combat it? Or what can we do to work to heal in the midst of it? Um, the challenge with 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 healing is that healing is much more substantive. So I mean, there's often a distinction between self-care and healing. And so I think both are important. Um, I think self-care has become commodified in our popular society, but yet I still think it's an important concept in the sense that it it's a more temporary fix to what is a larger problem. So, you know, I might go for a run, which is something that I like to do. I might um, read. These are things that I like to do, but it doesn't remove like the wound of the racial battle fatigue. It it just allows me to decompress and escape from it for, for a while. Healing is much more substantive, and I think it's much harder to get to that place. And so that's why I'm most invested right now in trying to understand what does true healing look like. And some of the things that I've learned from this work is that healing is possible usually only in the community of other Black folks or other people of color. Like folks often talk about, I don't feel healed unless I'm engaging and in maintaining intentional relationships with other Black people who support me, who I can process with, who tell me it's okay, who tell me that I'm, I'm enough, right? All these things that are important. So to me, that's one aspect of what makes healing central. The other thing that I've learned around healing from racial battle fatigue is that, again, you have to address the root issue. And so for me, my own healing process has often come through therapy, from working with my therapist to understand when I'm feeling X, Y, and Z thing, these are the things I can do to really address and ask myself why. And so not just engage in the self-care, but to really reflect on where is that coming from? Like, what is that tied to? So, for example, um, you know, when those five or six, however many there were police officers in Memphis recently killed another Black man, like, I thought to myself, like, I felt re-traumatized, but I had to figure out, like, where is that coming from? And again, without knowing the um, Michael Brown story that I shared earlier, it's impossible to understand why I was feeling that way, because, again, it's connected to that. And so I have to understand, like, how trauma is historical. It's tied to lots of different experiences. And so that's partly where my work is going now, is trying to understand how do we address the root of the problem so that we can get to the place of healing, because I think healing is possible. And I think folks often think, how is it possible to heal when racism is likely never going to go away in our lifetime, right? And so for me, I think it's around building community. It's around connecting with people. It's around understanding the root of the issue so that you're not constantly re-traumatized. And it's about me turning, like using my, my resources. Like I don't watch things that I know are gonna be problematic. Like I don't need to watch videos of black death, for example, to know that it's an issue. So I don't, I don't put that on myself. I don't need to read about that. 
Um, right. And so that's, I think, also what's really important from this work. Well, and not that we should still be placed in a situation where we're making the quote unquote business case for diversification in higher education in 2023. Um, but thinking about the continued conversation around being in an institution that replicates some of that trauma in different ways and why yeah. it matters to have communities available to faculty, students, staff. Uh, to ensure that we are offering space of healing in an institution that can reverberate some of those issues, right? Exactly. Well, speaking of one of those spaces, I mean, at least for me, I don't know about y'all, <laughs> ACPA offers some of those spaces to me as a person, as a professional. Um, and so thinking about ACPA, even my home is PAN, the Pan-African Network. Um, what are some of the things that you're most proud of uh, during your tenure as ACPA president? Yeah, so um, I think three things that are all related. Um, so I'll start with probably the, on my list here, it's the third one, but it's actually, I'm going to talk about it first because I think it informs the other two. So I was ACPA president from 2017 to 2018, March 2017 to March 2018. And um, <laughs> I mean, it was a whirlwind of a year. Like it's hard to believe at this point that what it was like six years ago when that happened. Um, it feels like it was three years ago. I just have to say that. <laughs> yes, it does. Like time. I'm like, where does time go? And so the, the one of the biggest things that I'm most proud of is I'm a very relationship oriented person. So it's the relationships that I developed specifically with the presidential trio with Donna Lee and Jamie Washington. Um, all three of us identify as Black. And it was the first time in ACPA's history that the whole presidential trio was Black. So, you know, it was like Blackness, Blackity Black. Like, I mean, all of those pieces were were really relevant. And, and there in the association, I'm really proud of that in the sense that not only did we identify as Black, but to me, it was a beautiful representation of the fact that Blackness is not monolithic. Right. Like we we all identify our blackness in very different and unique ways. And that, I think, is the beauty of of what that presidential trio was. It was for black folks in particular to see and understand that it's possible to be in leadership roles and it's possible to still exude your blackness in those roles and to do it in a way that works for you, while also it's intersected with your with our other identities. Right. And so I think that to me is like one of the most important things that I'm proud of is that we got to do this collectively and that it didn't feel isolating. I think sometimes those roles can feel isolating because you don't have the benefit of having people who you know have your back. And that was never in doubt for me as a CPA president. So that's one of the most important pieces. Related to that is, you know, this I wouldn't be... I wouldn't be AC, ACPA president if I wasn't able to talk about this next piece, which of course I'm going to talk about the um, strategic imperative for racial justice and decolonization, which was started when you know Donnelly was president and then when I became um, president after her. This imperative is around centering racial justice and decolonization practices throughout the association. And you know, I think right now in 2023, especially after um, the death of George Floyd, I think it's very like on brand right now in our society to to, to talk about we're anti-racist, right? I, I feel like I, I've seen so many statements around anti-racism, like it's, you know, it's again, it's the it's the end thing right now. Um, like the reality is like we were, we were centering anti-racism be before it became a, a cool thing, right? And so that to me is like really like, like powerful in the sense that 
this association decided to prioritize race, like racial justice before other organizations were, right? And we received pushback and lots of like critique around that, around like this association moving away from what I remember, right? Um, and I think that's really important. Like, I don't think you're doing anything really meaningful in life on that level if you're not getting critiqued and pushed back. Like, that means that you're actually doing something meaningful because you're ruffling feathers. And that's what needs to happen. No change has ever happened in our society without people in positions of power griping and pushing back, right? Um, so, I mean, it's not it's not like just white folks were like, oh yeah, like we're gonna give black folks the right to vote. Like that seems like a good idea, right? I mean, it, it came through like activism, through like pushing back. And so, so to me, like that's that's important. Um, and I think related to the pushback, so the strategic imperative was the second thing. The third thing then related to that is, so I often call myself a recovering perfectionist in the sense that I, I've been a perfectionist my whole life. Like things have to be perfect. You know, this is not a therapy session, but there's a whole history behind that, which I'm not going to get into now. Um, but what I've learned from the process of being ACPA president that I'm most proud of is that I can receive pushback and feedback and it not like demoralize me or like make me so like unable to move forward, which is how I was previously. And so as an example of that, when we decided to move to in this direction, we, the like decolonization was not part of the original imperative. Like that, we added that on because of feedback that we received from Native and Indigenous peoples around how their racial identity is often a political identity. It has lots of political implications. It's not, it's not synonymous with the ways in which other folks of color identify our, our race. Right. And so that by using racial justice, we were not including the perspectives of Native peoples. And so I felt really like I felt that to my core, like as president, like that. How could I have excluded? I'm somebody who cares about justice. I say I care about equity. And I totally overlooked like the nuances in these identities. The former me would have been debilitated by that and not been able to, to move forward. But the recovering perfectionist was able to take that feedback, sit with it, be in my guilt and my shame a little bit, right? But then I had to do something about it, right? Like I'm ACP president, like that means like moving forward and figuring out what to do with that. And so we had conversations and expanded the imperative. Um, and so I'm super proud that, you know, six years later, it's not just this like one-off thing, but it's still a legacy and part of the association. And that to me illustrates like the commitment and that I'm probably most proud of about it. What And what I love is that it's still being applied in different contexts within the association to this day, right? So now it's really thinking critically yes. about, you know, how do commissions and coalitions think about the day-to-day -day work and how does this webinar align with our goals around, you know, racial justice and racial equity. Um, so I'm grateful for you all um, offering a possibility model for how we do this work day-to-day -day on our campuses as well. And your legacy is living on. You alluded to this earlier, but I, I would love for you to expand on or if you have other things to offer uh, with this 
loaded question uh, that, that I want to yeah. offer you is when you think about healing and growing and evolving in higher education, what possibilities exist around this holistic, transformative um, learning spaces? And I know you alluded to this when talking about um, mm -hmm. you know Black people being in community with one another as, as one of the key findings from your work with racial battle fatigue. But what does that look like to think about possibilities of that exist around holistic, transformative learning spaces? Yeah, I think for me, ultimately, the, the most important piece here is that if we want to create these transformative, holistic learning spaces, we have to be intentional about creating spaces where people can thrive. People do not thrive in spaces where there is fear of punishment, um, where there's fear of, of um, consequences for failure, um, like where there's scarcity, uh, where there where there's um, lack of joy, like all of these things that that are that create, I think, what are soulless environments. Um, and what I mean by that, by soulless environments, is environments where people are just there to put in their time and leave. So you know, so I've been parts of these experiences where I I'm just there, knowing that these folks are not invested in me personally. Like just I'm just here, right? And so that to me is like the, the, the most important piece is creating spaces where people can thrive. Um, and so I think the ways that I try to do that in my work is I think three things. These are my, my core values as a person that I try to, to put into every space that, that I'm a part of so that people can thrive. Number one is practicing and modeling vulnerability. One of the classes I most love teaching is this class called um, Facilitating Intergroup Dialogues in Higher Education. Um, this course is focused on helping graduate students learn essentially how to facilitate dialogues about difficult topics, things like privilege, power, oppression, racism, sexism, equity, all these, all these various isms that are harming our society. So how do we help people talk about hard stuff in productive ways? What, one of the things I've learned in that course over time is that if I want students to be able to do this, I need to model what that looks like. So I never ask people to do what I myself don't model doing. So in that classroom space, for example, I, with my co-instructor or my TA, like we regularly will facilitate dialogues to model what that looks like. So they, again, that's around our, our, our belief, my belief in wanting to practice and model vulnerability, vulnerability. That means sharing my stories with them, sharing the times that I've had missteps, to back to the previous question around the racial justice, leaving out decolonization. Like I shared that story today with you all for a reason, because again, that models practicing and modeling vulnerability that I also have missteps in this process. Um, and I was in an environment where I was allowed space to learn, right? I didn't get punished or drugged because of that, right? Um, like folks gave me feedback and they were in community with me so that I could actually learn and grow from that. So I think that's important. Secondly, then, is um, paying attention to power. Uh, so power is always present, right? And I think folks don't thrive when we're not aware of power. So to create these learning spaces that are transformative, we have to be mindful of that we're all differently situated. So I, for example, as ACPA president, had more um, formal power, formal power is tied to one's position or title. I had more formal power than, for example, some other members of the governing board um, or students in ACPA, um, right? And so I had to be mindful of what my title as ACPA president, the power that it gave me. Um, we also have informal power, which is tied to our social identities. 
So I, as a cisgender Black man, I have a combination of different dominant as well as minoritized identities. As a cisgender man, I have a dominant identity, but my Blackness means I have a minoritized identities. So this, again, situates me differently. That's then tied to my formal power. So in this classroom space example that I shared, I was constantly trying to help students be, think about their power as facilitators, right? As co-facilitators, like how are you in how are you joining together to help the group understand how you're differently situated and you have to you have to be explicit about that because not everyone knows that right so that means naming your different identities and why it's important that these identities um are shared in the space so that's number 2 and then number 3 i think is fostering joy in the learning process um so for me like that that looks like I'm like, I, we're not just our trauma, right? And so I really try to find ways to to talk about, you know, Black joy, like spaces that I find transformative are often spaces where I, where I experience Black joy, where I can, I can be free, right? I can, I can um, do the things that I love doing without fear, again, of repercussions. Um, and so that means that my classes, like providing time at the start of every class for students to celebrate accomplishments of the week, for us to name that in the space, to applaud each other and to tell each other, we see you, like, that's great, like, wonderful, right? I think that's that's really important. Um, so to me, I think that's another example. Number three, then, is around, again, fostering joy. Because, again, we're more, we're more than our trauma, and I want people to see that. And I think that's, that helps folks create spaces where they can also thrive. Well, speaking of joy... Um, we also like to integrate a moment of fun into our interviews. And so we have this yeah. or that. Um, so you have to choose. You have to think fast. You have to choose. What if I don't both subscribe to either or thinking? I'm sorry, but we're going with Perry <laughs> right now. It's for uh, forced <laughs> choice. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll play along. Ready? Okay. Hugs or fist bumps? Hugs. Pennsylvania or Ohio? Ohio, that's where I live. <laughs> Ash or ACPA? Oh my gosh, that's a tough one. I gotta go with ACPA. I mean, yeah, it's my home. Love Akpa. Uh, <laughs> watching a good horror movie or watching basketball? Oh, it's gotta be the horror movie, which is often a solitary act because nobody in my community ever wants to watch horror movies with me. I'll watch them with you. I love those things. Well, let's do it. Yeah, I'm just seldom scared of them. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> introvert or extrovert? Oh, I'm a big introvert for sure. Me too. Editing or authoring? So this one has changed over time. I think now it's editing. I think partly because I'm in the point where my career, where I, I want to invest in other people's work and see them shine. So yeah, so it's editing, but although I still like to all right, I'm, I'm going to choose editing. You told me to choose, so I'm choosing. I appreciate the explanation, <laughs> though. The explanation was, I appreciate it. It was good. It was life-giving. <laughs> well, Stephen, we appreciate you. Um, Stephen has become a dear, dear, dear friend of mine. So to for him to be in our community, in our space, and to drop the gems that he dropped, we are greatly, greatly appreciated. And we hope that you picked up some of those gems and are going to put those in your pocket um, as you move throughout your career um, in life and higher education. Stephen, we are grateful for and thank you for pouring into us today. Thank you all. This was fun. I appreciate it.
Steven, he's just a dear, dear, dear friend that I think some people that don't know him and see him from a distance, uh, he's an introvert. But once you are able to engage with him, have conversation with him, he's just really, really thoughtful, really, really kind. And if I was to ever be a father, I'm not going to be, just to be clear, besides Zora. He has modeled for me like how he fathers his son, Sebastian, in their relationship. And I just I just love him dearly. Me too. Jana, should we ch- can we chat about what's been problematic this week? This is going to be slightly messy, but we're in the season three of Scholar T. So this is the T and what's problematic in these academic streets. Okay. So can we stop giving advice based on our own biases and discrimination? Recently, Dr. Carrie Yazid shared with the Twitter street some advice she received from a senior scholar in our field. Eight years ago today, at the age of 45 and a single mom of two, I graduated from Louisiana State University with a PhD in higher education leadership and research. I remember being told by Mary Beth Gaspin that I was too old and had started my career too late. Remember this, you're never too old, end quote. So when I saw this, Shana, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, we've all been told different things, but I could, then I thought about like how damaging being told something from someone that you either admire, respect, or is being put on a pedestal as a leader in the field. It doesn't have to be the person that was named in this particular tweet, because it's it happens to to many of us of, of senior scholars or senior administrators or university leaders that give us advice. And we like, I, we side-eye the advice because oftentimes that advice is rooted in a bias or rooted in some form of, of discrimination. And I just want to shout out to uh, Dr. Yazid because in her beginning of this stage of her career, but at a different stage in her life, she's still been able to achieve the things that she wants to achieve because this is something that she was determined to do, right? Um, and that whole, put whatever you put your mind to, you can achieve. But oftentimes people want to shift our mindset and tell us that we can achieve something because of our age, because of our gender, um, because of our race. Um, and those are the same people that say they're fighting for <laughs> marginalized, minoritized identities? I have a few responses. And of course, my first one is we're supposed to be trying to uplift and bring people through. And this person was already in the throes of their degree. So they obviously had found different ways to demonstrate their ability to not only enter into the program, but to graduate. So let's not even go through like the hurdles we put up just to, to prevent people from getting into programs in the first place. This person already was in one. So at that point, if you can't help elevate someone, help elevate them in their career, especially to your point, you're purportedly someone that's supporting, championing minoritized voices, then shut the fuck up. Like first, period, the end. But then on top of that, you know, if you feel like you are not able to support someone and their career choices, then find someone in your network, especially if you're supposed to be someone that is offering leadership in our field, find someone in your network that you feel would be more adequately able to do that. But you don't have to comment on every single person's progress, perspectives, um, prospects. But, 
But, that's not our role. But Shauna, what I have what I've seen and what I have experienced is white women don't have the self-awareness of that. So what she thinks she's doing is giving out advice that's going to help this particular student down the road because she's being keep quote unquote keeping it real or being honest and she can't even see her own bias, or her own issues that she's now perpetuating. I don't think people like that are even that self-aware to even know the harm that they're doing. Well, that's whiteness. <laughs> so that's my thoughts. You know, if, if, if you cannot remove whiteness from your vantage point, then it's going to shine through. Honey, it doesn't honey. matter what kind of work you produce whiteness is a hell of a drug honey it's a hell of a drug that's problematic (laughs) and that's what's problematic (laughs) this week (laughs) so we have a special guest joining us um to give the first line of jokes and we're gonna run these we're gonna run this series off with a special guest kennedy kennedy can you get the people the first joke and see if you can make uncle cameron laugh today at the bank this lady asked me to help her check her balance what was her balance? So I pushed her over. <laughs> sounds violent. He said it sounds violent. <laughs> she said Kanye shrug. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> okay. You ready? Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. Why couldn't G unit catch the bus? I don't know. They didn't have 50 cent. <laughs> You love these clever <laughs> rapper jokes, don't you? I do. I love a little rapper joke. Okay. What did we call Pikachu when he joined the Black Lives Matter movement? Mm. Appropriator. A Wokemon. <laughs> Instead of a Pokemon. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I like these last two. These ones for these ones are for you. You ready? I'm ready. What's Terrence Howard's favorite 1980s cartoon? Terrence Howard's favorite 1980s cartoon. Mm. Looney Tunes? I don't know. He main. <laughs> it's always your interpretation. It's always your interpretation. What's Terrence Howard's favorite part of the lion? The main? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> You and these Terrence Howard jokes. <laughs> Those are my jokes of the week. Well, we have some celebrations and some affirmations to give out, Shauna. Dr. Keon M. McGuire will be joining the College of Education as an Associate Professor of Higher Education Opportunity, Equity, and Justice at North Carolina State University. So shout out to Dr. McGuire in his new role, joining the legendary Dr. Joy Gatson-Gales. We want to celebrate a new podcast that's hashtag police free campus podcast from the campus abolition research lab at the University of Michigan and a brainchild of Dr. Charles H.F. Davis. The Campus Abolition Research Lab is an interdisciplinary research incubator focused on leveraging data, research evidence, and critical analyses to disrupt and dismantle the carceral university. Through public programs and events, The Campus Abolition Research Lab brings together scholars, practitioners, and organizers to collaboratively reimagine post-secondary education as a life-affirming institution. We will put the link to the new podcast in our episode notes. So as you enter into this upcoming week, 
We hope that you are able to give yourself space to rest, that you're offering yourself the opportunity to be mindful. And if you need to break a racket or two, feel empowered. Well, that's what's happening in these academic scholar T streets. We will see you next time. <laughs>